0: This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, so you can begin to find your uh, way there. We're going to be wrapping up our study on, our series rather, on Christian worship, and so then next week we'll start our identity series, which will carry us in, uh, into our return to the building. And so, but today we're going to wrap up this, this uh, study on, on our Christian worship. I think one of the things that really strikes me is every time I read this passage here in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it's just how much space Paul gives to the Lord's Supper and how uh, largely just kind of ill-equipped people are when it comes to how to engage in the Lord's Supper in, in, in Baptist churches primarily. And so I think, it, I think it's a helpful corrective for us in that, I think it's instructive when we begin to move through and apply and just simply to understand, like, this is, this is how you do it. This is like what your frame of mind needs to look like. This is what the church needs to look like. This is what our focus is on. So this, this stands the, the, the possibility of being transformative for our engagement to the Lord's Supper because it's this fantastically corrupt community that he writes to. So he's addressing a whole host of issues of which we get to overhear and apply to us. And so the hope would be that we're not the ones making the mistakes, having to be corrected. The hope would be that we would employ wisdom by learning from others' mistakes. Amen? Amen. So what Paul does in this passage is he addresses kind of things that are interior to me, interior to you, that are deficient in terms of taking the Lord's Supper. He, he discusses things that are deficient in terms of kind of body life between you and I, between you and the person sitting beside you. And then he addresses those things that are deficient in terms of a vertical nature, things between uh, you and God, and kind of misunderstanding the fundamental spiritual thing that's taking place in taking the Lord's Supper. And so I want us to just kind of understand that framework of reference as we go in through this. Uh, today, we're going to spend some time, we're going to journey from verse 27 uh, through verse 32 is really gonna, where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And then he offers some practical instruction in 33 and 34. Uh, and, and if you can read, you can understand that. Okay, And so let me, let me read this passage, and then we'll, we'll walk through it together. Paul writes and he says, "...whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup." About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So, just as you look at 33 and and 34, recognize that in 33, he's picking up and he's speaking directly to the point that as soon as you get there, it's just like open buffet time. And so, you've got uh, these people who are just eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. And he says, Don't do that, it's just a point of practical application wait for other people. If you're gonna have a large meal, wait for other people to show up. Imagine if, if you threw a dinner party and you invited uh, my family over, so the five of us knock on the door. You say, come on in, we're just finishing dinner. Oh, like just finishing getting ready? No, no, you know, we told y'all 6.30, but we're more of a 5.30 crowd. So we went ahead and ate about an hour ago. We throw it in the microwave, it'll be good to go. It would be odd, it would be odd. And so a helpful corrective, if that's you and you wonder why that nobody wants to come back, wait for everybody to arrive. Uh, before you eat. And then he offers the helpful deal, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. When they gathered as a body to take the Lord's Supper, they had transformed it into this meal that stood more for the taking in of sustenance, the taking in of food. And so they had had lost the spiritual uh, understanding of how this thing works. And so they had, had looked at it, as just kind of the caloric intake. And so he said, look, if you're hungry, eat at home. Don't show up hungry and famished where you can't concentrate on the deeper spiritual thing that's taking place, eat at home. Uh, that's not what this gathering is for. And you need to do that so that when you show up, God doesn't have to bring out uh, the ruler of pain. And then he says, apparently there's some other things. He's going to talk to them when they get there. Good things or bad things? I don't know. He doesn't say, and we can't determine it. But let's get into the, to the meat of the text uh, that he addresses and that we're going to look at today. So he opens up and says, "'Whoever therefore eats the bread, "'drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner "'will be guilty concerning the body "'and the blood of the Lord.'" And so the question we have to ask any time we encounter this is, what is he relating this to? What is he connecting it to? Well, you'll remember if you were here last week that as he ended our previous section, he said that we're engaged in two things when we take the Lord's Supper. There's an aspect of remembrance. So there's this aspect of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, and, and, and looking forward to his coming again. But there's also this aspect beyond just the remembrance of proclamation. And so because we're engaged in those two things, remembrance and proclamation, and because we're doing it until he comes again, there's gravity to it. There's gravity to it. And so when we take the Lord's Supper... In terms of rich as our deacons are kind of coming and they're passing the plate down and you're grabbing the cup and you're grabbing the bread in terms of when we do this what he's calling you to do is to remember the sacrifice of Jesus because it is the sacrifice of Jesus that has qualified you or your faith tethered to it that has qualified you to take of the Lord's supper the Lord's supper isn't like, it, it, it's not some type of uh, sip and see where you come and say, oh, isn't Jesus so cute? Let me just try this. Let me say, oh, a little bit of Jesus never hurt anybody. The Lord's Supper is specifically designed for those who have committed their lives to Jesus. Committed their lives to Jesus. It's not for uh, people who are just interested in Christianity. And so there are ways to take the Lord's Supper inappropriately. So I remember as a kid, the first Lord's Supper I can ever remember uh, we're at this church with my parents. It must have been a nighttime service because there's this, this sense of dark in my memory. It could have also been the hunger I was facing. And so, because and, I was, I was incredibly hungry. And so I was probably four or five years old. And I just remember this guy would not shut up. Some of how you guys feel weekly. And, and so he's going on and on and on, droning on and on and on. And then I begin to see that they're passing food around. And I think this may not be so bad. I'd love a candy bar. And as, the, as it gets closer, I'm you know, a little bit disappointed. I recognize it's not a candy bar, but it is in fact, Delightful loaves of bread. Delightful loaves of bread. Not the little chiclet stuff that we eat, but actually like real bread on these plates they're passing around. And so I begin to pester my mom. Mom, I'm hungry. She's like, yeah, I heard you the last 50 times you said that. But I'm like, but here's an opportunity to assuage my, my onslaught towards you. And just, I didn't say it that way. I just said, mom, I'm hungry. And here comes food. And she said, you can't eat that. I got teeth. I can eat that. I have the ability. You know, I can do this. You know, you can't eat that. Look, you're not a Christian. You haven't given your life to Jesus. You haven't been baptized. Any number of things. You can't eat that. And I'm just like, sign me up. I want to follow Jesus. I want to eat some bread. She's like, you can't take this. You misunderstand what's going on. And so uh, she was a good mom, and so she let me go hungry. Now, I, I fundamentally misunderstood the Lord's Supper, and I understood it. And, and that's, 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 that's perfectly appropriate for a kid to miss this. But one of the things we have to recognize is that the Lord's Supper isn't allowing your kids to have a neat or novel experience, right? And so my mom was good in, in not letting me eat. And that sounds odd, but in this context, it was true. And so he goes in and he says, look, you need to recognize because you're remembering and because you're proclaiming, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this isn't for you. It's a commemorative meal. It's a, it's a memorial meal. And so he says that whoever eats it in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. So there's an unworthy way to take it. And so Paul's going to give us the three ways that it can be unworthy, but, but just kind of the very manner of, of this, this, this confrontation that we're facing, right? That we're confronted with His Word. That when we come in, recognize this, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy but we can take the meal in a worthy way. And there's a difference there, right? And so the meal isn't for perfect people. It's not for people who haven't sinned this week or or this day, but it's for people who are resting on the sure and solid work of Jesus, people who have been made right and been made holy by the sheer uh, effort of Jesus, not any work of our own, but that Jesus has accomplished it on his own. And so one of the things we have to do is to set our minds that we have to focus on him and on his work and not my own. But I can do things that make me unworthy uh, in that moment to take it, even though he has made me worthy and right and acceptable to take it. And he offers this harsh word. He doesn't just say, look, you're going to disappoint God. You're going to upset God. You're going to frustrate the deacons if you take the Lord's Supper unworthily. No, he adds this incredible uh, grave rebuke to it. He says, you'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I want you to understand how strong of a word this is. You, if you are a Christian, you are the recipient of the sacrifice of Jesus. Christ's atoning work on the cross of Calvary stands for you and for your salvation. You have been made whole. You have been forgiven your sins. Your eternity is set secure and established on the basis of what Jesus did, okay? And and so you have identified positively with the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, what he says here in terms of your culpability, your guilt, it would be for you in that moment as if you are guilty of nailing Jesus to the tree. This is what he says. You are guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. In those moments where we hurriedly rush into taking the Lord's Supper, it's kind of this, just oh, this is just kind of what we do. Like, I'm at church, I get a light snack, and then I go home. If you look at it that way, if you go into it without fully engaging your heart, fully engaging your mind, and surrendering yourself to him. And so it's just kind of a matter of just kind of rote obedience. In those moments, we find ourselves being guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, this is a difficult thing to take in. This should make each of us stop and begin to ask this question of, when have I done this? Because if we're honest, we recognize that all of us are guilty of this at different points. Like some of us have come in and, and the Lord's Supper served, and we know we're not ready. But out of some sense of guilt or pride or, or, or whatever various reasons that we're caught up in, we go ahead and we take it, right? And when we take it, what that reveals about our understanding or conviction of the Lord's Supper is that it is empty symbolism. It's meaningless. It's perfunctory. It's just something we go through because that's one of the things that we do. But there's no deeper significance to it. But what Paul wants us to understand is that there's terrific significance to it. So we've got to stop. We've got to wait. We've got to give God time in our hearts to speak to us and to begin to say, James, what about this issue you need to deal with? Or, 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 or Sarah, like, what about this, this issue with this other person that you've made more pronounced? Or you're visiting another church and you're thinking about leaving and coming, and so what it says to you about being restored to your brother, what it says about being restored to your sister, what it says about overcoming squabbles in a church, squabbles in a family, hatred in your heart, and the place of unrepentant sin in your life. Whew. So, in some sense, like it would be absolutely appropriate for us to come in and say, hey, look, we're gonna sing a song, we're gonna take some announcements. We're going to keep the lights on, so we're going to set the offering plate at the back. But we're going to give you like 45 minutes to an hour just to get honest before God. And at the end of that, then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Because it's so difficult sometimes to wade through all the mess that we've made of our lives. And we make it so easy on occasion for ourselves to excuse our bad behavior. But this is what God wants from you. Complete, honest, 100% transparency he wants you to be broken before him. Because broken we come, right? Broken we come to Jesus. We don't come as whole people. We come as broken people to be made whole by him. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of our brokenness and the power he has to heal and make us whole. So he says, whoever therefore eats it in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. So he begins to move into how we address this. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So within that time frame of, of the hour or the 45 minutes or what we do, we have uh, Justin typically comes up and he offers a prayer of confession and gives us time built in an opportunity to respond positively towards God and his rebuke. This is what we're praying for. This is what we're asking for. This, this idea, this, uh, this trajectory and direction of introspection, of looking inwardly, so notice it's really helpful in this regard. He doesn't say uh, to Justin, Justin, let you examine Matt then. D, let you examine Ken then. Jane, let you examine Carol B. then. Wouldn't that be a mess? Like, I want to go last. I want to do the examining. I don't want to be examined. But that's not what he's saying. He, he turns to us, and this is the beautiful and wonderful thing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have this this amazing thing with inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit can do in this time. If you get quiet, shut up, stop thinking, stop planning, and just be here, just be in that moment and have this prayer God, would you reveal those things that either I'm doing, not doing, or bitterness I'm harboring, my failure to see you and to reflect on your goodness? Would you reveal all my inadequacies right now? Would you? God is gracious. If God hit, hit me with all of my failures at any given time, I would be a puddle of tears laying on the ground, and I wouldn't be able to get up. But in those moments, He reveals to us what we need to know in that moment. He reveals to us our shortcomings in that moment. He reveals all the various ways that, that we're failing to live up to the grace and beauty and glory of His cross. It's not revealing all of our dysfunction. He's at work in all those areas and those that we're not yet ready to admit that we have. But the process of self-examination, I want you to hear this. It's not primarily a work of your efforts. It's a work of your yieldedness and your submission. So this is what we do. We get in that moment and we graciously and as fully as we're possibly able, we submit to the Holy Spirit. And we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, to show us our waywardness and to lead us back to his truth. It's beautiful and devastating. It's beautiful and devastating. Each time we take the Lord's Supper, we say that there are some of you who who came in and for whatever reason, you're not yet ready to relinquish some sin. And for you, as the the ordinances are passed, as you receive the cup, as you receive the bread, just let it pass. This is a spiritual exercise this is a spiritual encounter with our God. And one of the ways occasionally that we honor him and honor his sacrifice and look forward to his coming again is by simply recognizing I'm not yet ready to relinquish sin. Now, this is a devastating uh, testimony. This is a devastating confession, right? That a Christian would, would be more at home with some sin in their life than they are the Holy Spirit in their, in their heart. But if we're honest, that occasionally, some of us, this is what's true of us. This is why we are, uh, have a dysfunctional relationship with our wife. This is why we have a dysfunctional relationship with our spouse. This is why we, we don't interact with our children or our neighbors. Occasionally, it is because of unrepentant sin in our lives. Right? Occasionally, what you come to recognize is that someone has sinned against you. You have been the righteous party, and you've enjoyed being the righteous party because this person over here has sinned against you. And so what you've done for many years or many days is you have harbored resentment and bitterness in your heart. And what I want to communicate to you is that that bitterness and that failure to forgive and extend forgiveness is in itself unrepentant sin. What God would have you to do is to go to that person to forgive them, to go to that person and to model the kind of forgiveness that you've been given in the person of Jesus Christ and to extend gracious, full forgiveness to them. Now, this may not mean the full restoration of your relationship with that person, but what it does mean is faithful obedience to Jesus. And this is so difficult. It's hard to go to somebody and to say, wait, have I told you all the ways that you failed me since last year? No, of course you haven't, because I haven't seen you. But brother, you really hurt me w- when you said this. You really hurt me when you did that. And, and just, I just needed to communicate those things to you, that, that, man, I have been harboring resentment and bitterness towards you, and I forgive you. You know, it could be in those scenarios that, and this is the way Hollywood would paint this, the person comes over and they pull you into this hug, and it's like, big crocodile tears, and you're just like heaving together, and it's just beautiful and amazing. But it could be the person says, you are an absolute lunatic. I don't know what you're talking about. If anybody needs to be forgiving, it's me, and I'm not there yet. It could be that way. Our extension of forgiveness is not predicated. It's not, it's not given on the basis of the expectation of receiving forgiveness or some, some sense of, of owning the fault, right? Right? If that was, we only apologized when we expected the other person to say it's okay, or when we forgave the person for them to own up to the guilt, uh, we wouldn't be forgiving people and we wouldn't be apologizing very much. The beautiful forgiveness we've received in the gospel of Jesus Christ has us quick to extend forgiveness, to forgive an offense, and ready to own an offense when we've been the guilty party. Amen? Oh. That was a mumbled amen. That's hard. So he goes on. He says we need to examine ourselves. We need to look interiorly. We need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do that. He says, for anyone who drinks, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so now he's beginning to expand it out from us. So we've we've discerned ourselves, we've examined uh, our, our own body. But now he says you need to. To discern the body. Now, I think this functions on two levels. I think it functions on two levels. And, and so I want to kind of build the case for this. I think anytime that, that he's mentioning body, he's communicating a couple of different things. And, and we can get there. One from the book of Colossians. And so in Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the head of everybody, say body, body. the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the, everybody say, body. Body. Jesus is the head of the body. And he communicates really very much the same thing in Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has this this wonderful setup, and he's moving through, and he's describing how these things work together. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his... Body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is the body of Jesus. And so there are two things at work there. And so on the first level, just kind of looking at the Lord's Supper, if you're in the Gospels in Matthew 26, or if you just jump uh, most previously within the book of First Corinthians, First Corinthians, back in chapter 11 and verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. And so there's the level of just contemplating Jesus, contemplating the significance of his presence in these elements, his spiritual presence and his blessing of these elements. So there's something significant tied up in, 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 in these elements given. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we have to discern, we have to carefully pay attention to his body and his blood and all the various things that mean. So we think of Isaiah 53, his body, which is is broken and abused for us, for our sins. We think of his blood, which is poured out for the sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins, the atoning blood of Jesus, which is poured out for you and for me, and for all those who would cry out to God for salvation in the name of Jesus. So we reflect upon his body. How much more... uh, Importance does that give to the Lord's Supper? It's not just waiting for the one element and waiting for the second element. We find ourselves in this time focused on Christ and His sacrifice. Blocking everything else out. Blocking everything else out. We're focused in thinking about his sacrifice, his body, which was given for you for the, for the forgiveness of your sin. But then Paul's created this wonderful metaphor by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his body is the church. And this gets so much more difficult. Because when we begin to discern the body, the overall church health, we recognize that there's a very real possibility that as any individual church gathered, that they would say, huh, we're so incredibly dysfunctional. Like we need a six hour seminar. And maybe at the end of that, we can put the elements in the room with us. We can look at them from a distance but, but, but distant, remote chance we don't get to take them at any time uh, in, in any conception of our future because we're so jacked up. It's difficult when we discern the body because we go to church with other people, other fallen people. Like I keep praying for perfect, sinless people to come to our church and they don't come. It's just, it's just really frustrating. It's like, it's like the first prayer that I pray, and I just know God's not going to answer it. Would you put sinless, sinless people? He said, as soon as you're sinless, I'm like, it's not what I asked for. <laughs> sinless, rich people. And, and still he doesn't answer it. <laughs> it's difficult because we're called to do life with one another, to be intimately invested in one another's lives. You cannot discern what you don't know. And I would tell you, you cannot discern what you're not committed to. We've developed as a culture a culture of non of commitment, where we have loose ties with friends, loose ties with intimate relationships, loose ties within marriage, and loose ties within the church. Where we we we've created this culture of of long term non committal dating of church. This is what it looks like. Long-term non-committal dating of church. We're just waiting for a better more attractive model to come along. And when she does, we're dumping the church. We're we're blocking that number from our from our cell phones because this is the culture we've grown up in. And I would tell you you cannot adequately discern the body without committing and knowing. And committing and knowing is really kind of a bummer. Like There is stronger language that I would love to use, but my son's in the room. But I just want you to understand that, 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 that it takes a toll on you and you take a toll on us. But this is what he calls us to. Radical commitment. Radical commitment. Not casual indifference. And when we take of the elements without discerning the body, without adequately reflecting upon the significance of Jesus, without adequately reflecting upon the body life that we have together. Have I sinned against my brother or sister in Christ? Am I burdened for them and for their needs? Am I burdened for the people around me? Do I know them? Am I engaged with them? Then there's a chance in doing that that we're eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. Now this is where the passage gets really hard. We like to think of judgment as things of like missing out on blessings, right? You better do that. You better tithe if you want to receive the blessings of God. I don't think those things are equated, but that's great. You you better do this if you want to receive the blessing of God. If you're not obedient, God will not bless you. These things are not necessarily true. And we conflate the blessings of God with financial benefit. And and these things are hardly ever the case in the New Testament. Look what he says is going to happen. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, and this may be the case. This is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. Now I just want to stop here and offer some clarity. Is he meaning to say that you could take the Lord's Supper poorly and you could be weak, ill, or die? It seems to be that's what he's saying. Is he saying that if you take the Lord's Supper poorly that you necessarily will be weak, ill, or die? That is not what he's saying. Is he saying that sickness in my life is evidence of sin in my life? That is not what he's saying. That is not true. Many people are held hostage to a belief set that says sickness or bad things in my life are the direct result of sin in my life and God's chastisement or his punishment. It's not necessarily true it's not necessarily true. The vast majority of bad things that happen to us in our lives are either of our own making. We've made poor decisions. Our investment strategy was the lottery, right? We've made poor decisions. We, we, we did not know our spouse before we married them, right? And then they ran off with all of our money. And so that, those are examples of, of poor decisions and, and consequences that stem from them. Some of the things happen because we make bad decisions. But the vast majority of things that happen to us in this life are the result of living in a fallen world. So we live in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they introduced evil into this world sin into this world and god's plan for redemption is his son that gives us an eternal hope and promise but the the effects of salvation don't top up our bank account they don't make us more handsome they don't make us uh unable to get sick we still live in a fallen and a broken world that is dying and decaying and all the evidence of its frailty testifies to God's goodness and a better country than where our ultimate home and destiny lies. Amen? But what he is saying is that one of the things God has in his tool bag of discipline is to make us weak, to make us ill, or to bring our life to an end. Just from a failure to worthily take the Lord's Supper. You want to be close to God? You want to know Him? We don't get to flippantly engage in our intimacy with God. It's not your buddy you call on your phone, it's not your friend you tag in an Instagram post. He's the sovereign creator of the universe, all powerful, worthy of all honor worthy of all glory and respect, and never, never to be approached recklessly. The Lord's Supper is to be reverenced. It's to be taken with great care. For in taking of the Lord's Supper, we remember His sacrifice, we proclaim him until he comes again. Some of us are weak, some of us are ill, and some of our friends and family have died as a result of taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. This is an indication that many of us, what we need to do right now is have a collective sigh of, oh man, that was a near miss on me. I'm so glad as a four-year-old my mom said, don't eat. I'm eating. and All of a sudden, I just I kick out right there on the pew. It'd have been revival in that church, but it would have been it'd have been rough for her. So he goes into verse thirty-one. He says, "But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." And so, if we have this this complete submission to God, examining ourselves, examining the body, discerning the body, reflecting on the goodness of Jesus in His sacrifice, we would not be judged. We take it carefully. We take it with much reflection and contemplation. We take it reverently. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Discipline is, in all the the, the attributes and and blessings and wonder and amazement of Christianity, somehow discipline doesn't seem to make it to the list of very many of our gospel presentations. Do you want to live forever? Do you want to be forgiven your sins? Amen. Come to know Jesus. Do you want to be disciplined? Hmm. So if I go to my kids and they're in the midst of disobeying and doing things wrong, and I'm like, do you want dad to discipline you? What's the response going to be? Hard (laughs) pass. Hard pass. Hard pass. You know what? We're just going to keep disobeying if it seems to be an option. Like you seem to be open to the possibility that we could just continue in disobedience. Are you cool with that? To which I would answer, no, I'm not cool with that. Like it's time for discipline. And I discipline my sons because I love them. And God disciplines you because he loves you. If God did not love you, then he would stay his hand of discipline towards you. Hebrews 12 offers this really stunning teaching on discipline. Hebrews twelve five through 8 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons? Have you forgot the thing that he said to you that was directed towards you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? Why not look at it lightly? Why not be frustrated when he brings it towards us? It says, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The discipline of God in your life is evidence of his love for you. The discipline of God in your life is evidence that he's not through with you. He hasn't written you off. He hasn't kicked you to the curb. He hasn't said no more with you. This is what his discipline indicates. Verse 7, it says, It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you have children, or if you were a child, and all of us were children, then you have received in some sense discipline. You have received in some sense discipline, some well-executed and some poorly manipulated. But look what he says in verse 8. If you are left without discipline from God, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The absence of discipline in your life is not an indication of God's blessing, but it could be an indication of your unregenerate state, that you are not a Christian. This is somber. This is so incredibly difficult. I've been living uh, in wanton sin. I've been been sleeping with my girlfriend, my boyfriend. I've been looking at pornography. I've been cheating on my wife. I've been cheating on my taxes. I just, every day I wake up and tell as many lies as I can. I've been speeding and, 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 and doing everything I could possibly think of. And I hear nothing from God. So I think God's probably okay with it. We encounter Hebrews 12, and it gives us this terrible encounter that that it could be that God's treating you as one who's not a son. It's not that he's okay with it. He He just does not know you in Jesus. He brings his discipline because he loves you. He wants what's best for you, and that's to be united in close relationship with him. When we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. For what purpose? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. If you're not receiving the active discipline of the Lord in the midst of your sin, and either through the conviction of the Holy Spirit or through God's superintending purposes to make your life miserable, to bring men and women across your path to confront you with your sin, it could be evidence of the fact that you're not a Christian. My prayer for you would be that you would see the absence of God's discipline as an alarm that is indicating to you that you need to submit your life to him, and you can. John chapter 3 has this amazing account of Jesus meeting with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks him what it takes to be united to God and to know God, and, and Jesus tells him that you have to be born again, that you have to be made new. You need to have this birth from above. So Jesus paints the story of the gospel Uh, In John 3, 16, and I want to read through verse 18, and then we're just going to end. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Why? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the agent of salvation and life-saving. If you want to come to know God, you come to know God through the salvation of the Son. God loves you, even in your waywardness and sin. The Bible tells us that we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses in which we once lived. But even in that moment, God sent His Son Jesus to die for you, to die for me. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. If you believe in Jesus, there is hope for you in eternity, that you will dwell with God forever in eternity that you are forgiven your sins. But if you refuse to believe in Jesus and to submit yourself to Him, there's something so much graver than being weak. There's something so much more devastating than being sick. And there's something so much more permanent than death. It's eternal condemnation. It says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already on the basis of this, that he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. When we take the Lord's Supper, as Christians, we remember. We remember His sacrifice. It transforms our present and our actions, and we look forward in anxious expectation to His coming again. It does not make us Christians, but it reminds us of the sacrifice that does. And what we do in the Lord's Supper in proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes is singing out this wonderful testimony of salvation only ever in the beautiful name of Jesus. And calling all those who might happen to be in our midst or might happen to see us and listen to us that there is salvation waiting for you. You can escape the condemnation that you're currently resting under. But you can only ever do it in one name. And that's not the name of good works. It's not the name of a better life. It is the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us.